The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host. You've heard it before. James Fox is also alongside us. He's the senior editor at Future Sox, and we are partnered with Sox Machine. It's been that way all year, and it's been awesome, and it's all thanks to Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson, of course, too. Jim, thanks so much for jumping on the Future Sox Podcast today. He is in charge of SoxMachine.com, and he also took a trip to Birmingham to watch Project Birmingham, the AA affiliate of the Chicago White Sox. That's where a lot of their top prospects are playing together to end the season. Now the double A season has concluded and we're having Jim on now to talk to us about what he saw when he was out there. So let's start there, Jim. What was your experience going there? What were some of the expectations that you were hoping to see and get out of the experience? And then when you left, what really did you get out of it? Well, my really was going down there to see was what does this look like just in terms of people, uh, bodies, <laughs> just when you have all these uh, uh, players thrown together, when you have Winston-Salem basically stripped to the parts in order to support Birmingham, when you have uh, so many players going in and out of the uh, developmental list, you know, just kind of you know, gaming the active roster a little bit to make sure that they have enough players on hand. It's, you know, I, I want to know what that looked like. And it turns out it's a lot of bodies, um, you know, there's like a line going through the uh, batting cages. Uh, yeah, Birmingham is a couple of batting cages behind the right field fence that they're using. And there's a lot of guys lined up there. It was raining or they're expecting rain. So they didn't hit on the field. So they had to use the cages to hit. And yeah, just it's a lot of uh, just players requiring a finite amount of space. Like when I was watching the dugout um, between innings, or I should say like when the Barons were in the field. Usually, when the you know team is pitching and the team is defending, like you you know the 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 dugout thins out. Uh, but in this case, the Barons I think had more bodies in their dugout when they were pitching uh, than the other team had while they were hitting. 
Like even though they had Hall of the Defenders like back in the dugout, you know, ready, uh, you know, resting between innings, the Barons still had more uh, on the reserve list. He had a lot of coaches. Uh, Jose Contreras was there, um, and, and so you, you get the sense of like why this probably isn't a tenable situation for competing teams over the course of a full season because it's just you know when you go when they go on the road road teams are not accommodating them for the extra field time and for the extra cage time uh they're not building extra lockers like regions field has so it's uh i i don't think it can continue for you know longer than the couple weeks that the white Sox are using it just because you know the barren season goes on a week longer than the a ball teams and uh there's a way to kind of use it to end the season gracefully. But yeah, if they started the season that way, I imagine uh, it'd be hard to find things for a lot of guys to do and places for a lot of guys to stand and, and like even change. I think that's a really important point that you brought up is the timing of it all. How do you think this project was executed and how do you believe it was taken in by the rest of the league? I think when you look at the results and you look at like the, disparity between guys like Luis Mieses and Brian Ramos, who, you know, I think if they were promoted by themselves to Birmingham, you wouldn't have thought anything of it because they played well, especially like Mieses has been like, you know, repeating the level. So, you know, he was due for a call up and they've been more or less holding their own Ramos. His production is a bit muted right now, but like in terms of strikeout rates, like that's kind of what I look at when guys are uh, trying a new level, when they're seeing whether they're, you know, able to keep their heads above water. I look at strikeout rates and, you know, Ramos is putting the ball in play. Mieses is having a, a more fun, I think, than Ramos is in terms of just, uh, you know, production. But, you know, they're both, you know, able to put bat on ball at the level. When you look at the A-ball guys, you know, Colson Montgomery is already wearing down towards the end of his first full season. You know, Westcath is struggling a lot. Like Wilfred Veris is probably the only guy of the A-ball prospects, of the Canapolis guys, who is really looking like he should in terms of just the ability to put the bat on the ball and get in the play. He's got three homers. So he's been a pleasant surprise, but I think, you know, everybody else has been more or less meeting expectations and the expectations for some have been really low. Uh, like DJ Gladney is a case, like he's got 23 strikeouts against one walk and I didn't expect much success from him given his strikeout problems at Kannapolis and he's living up to it. But the question I have, and I know that James is working on the Arizona fall league preview for, for future socks. And so I'll kind of throw the question back to him. When I saw the roster of names come out for the AFL, I thought, Oh, the White Sox are using Project Birmingham as the Arizona Fall League of sorts, you know, for their top prospects and more or less using their hands on instructional time and, and, and allocating the playing time against advanced level pitching when they want to against who they want to see. And, and that's kind of what I first thought. Uh, it, the last piece I put together about Project Birmingham was, oh, uh, this might be what they're using the Arizona Fall League for instead. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it. And, you know, I looked at the instructional league roster too, kind of, but that's like a bridge roster. And I had heard that they're going to send some more guys there. But I mean, like you're not sending an Oscar Colas to instructional league and probably not Norhe Vera either, right? And I would think a guy like Vera um, or Mena, like we don't know what, what those players' innings restrictions are. So that like has something to do with it. But when I saw the, the guys go into the AFL, like they all kind of make sense, like in their own way. But I expected a little bit more star power. Like I, I like Oscar Colas turned 24, you know, this weekend. I feel like him going to the AFL made perfect sense. I mean, he's played 110 games. You know, they could 
mix around like how often he plays. I mean, even like a Lenin Sosa, like, I mean, it's a prospect circuit, right? So, you mm-hmm. know, they've typically sent, you know, they're sending five guys that are rule five eligible, you know, so sometimes they do do that. The Terrell Tatum was suspended for PEDs, but he was having a pretty good year. So like, I understand that one too. Uh, but I was a little surprised that there wasn't some of their more, like advanced top guys there. Like Colson Montgomery's wiped. Like he he shouldn't really play any more baseball. Like I agree with that. But, you know, it, it was just, a, I was a little surprised when I saw that list. So just in regards to like Project Birmingham, like we had we had Jack McMullen on recently um, and he was, I guess, more negative than most people we, we talked with. I mean, I think like Jim Callis and people like him thought it was a cool idea. I think, you know, from our end, me and Mike just, we're happy that the White Sox were like the ones that tried something different, right? They're like not the mm-hmm. organization that usually does this. Do you think it's feasible for other people to try? I know you kind of said like, you know, you didn't think it was, you know, you can't do it earlier in the year or anything, but does this, d- does this become anything or is this just kind of going to be like a one-off thing that the White Sox did one time? You think it strikes me as, you know, I guess a little bit gimmicky, um, but also maybe just a product of what exactly the White Sox had in their farm system at a given time. Like they had a lot of, you know, collegiate players that they could call up to Philip Canapolis. So like, you know, they, they needed to bump up guys there. And, you know, they, they I think they just looked at their rosters and said, well, you know, we got, you know, Mieses and we have, you know, Ramos and, and Hackenberg coming up. Why don't we just send them all to Birmingham so we don't have to like, you know, send our roving guys, our instructors, you know, you know, maybe it's making it easier on the coaching staff to have everybody in one place just to not have to try to, you know, allocate resources in terms of instructional personnel. I think, you know, I just look at, you know, Winston-Salem and I just felt so bad for the dash, like not having really anybody and getting, you know, shut out and one hit and three hits and, and reading uh, Julie's recaps, the week in Winston uh, recaps and thing like, oh, the, the cupboard's empty there, aside from like Harvin Mendoza and Ben Norman, a couple other guys who are, are trying, but not really, you know, anybody who can carry weekly recaps on their own. It was pretty, pretty dire, but I, I think, you know, um, the results being what they are, you know, especially you know, pretty cut and cut and dried and clear. Um, the A ball guys shouldn't be there. The high A guys uh, look like you know it's worth their while. I don't think it's going to shift any you know, to to use the, a buzzword from you know corporate buzzword from uh, you know ten years ago. It's not going to shift any paradigms about how teams operate uh just because i think the results are what they they are and and you know they're facing the southern league which is a smaller league they're facing the rocket city trash pandas that's the angels affiliate and we know that the angels went really pitching heavy on their draft so it's probably a rough week to end up on for a, a team with a ball hitting prospects uh facing a team that invested so much in uh pitching that could get ready in a hurry so that might be like a a I guess unrepresentative notes for the rest of double uh, A talent and the way you know the the double A rosters are allocated, but I don't think it's going to change anything dramatically. I think this is maybe more of a way for the White Sox to simplify matters on their end to start on offseason planning for certain guys who have uh, certain strides to make, and then you know watching the AFL roster too, and just you know as it's a little bit you know light on name brand talent that maybe they saw as an opportunity to get that upper level experience in a way that they could manage rather than you know having to balance a guy who's 
you know, playing every day against uh, pitchers who might be too much for him or a guy who should be playing more but is stuck on the taxi squad and only plays twice a week because of that designation. So that, that's another way to look at it. I think that's very well described. And the point you made right at the top of the of the answer to James' question is that it was the right time for the White Sox to implement the strategy based on where the talent pool lies and where a lot of their strength is in the farm system at this point. And it does make sense that you know, if, if you're going to commit to these players, let's give them a taste of high-level competition. And that's where I wanted to go with this question. Does it stunt any type of development for these players with the exaggerated jump in skill when it comes to some of these prospects facing double-A talent for the first time? Does it do any damage, in your opinion, to, to their development path? That is something to watch out for. I mean, if, if you've been following the White Sox farm system for some time, and I'm, I'm talking about like, you know, listeners rather than, than you guys, I'm not talking down to you, <laughs> but if, if you've been talking, yeah, if you've been, you know, watching this and you remember like the Buddy Bell days with like Courtney Hawkins and Keon Barnum and Hawkins being thrown to Winston-Salem and just, you know, basically drowning there for years, Jared Mitchell having the ankle injury coming back and like coming back and playing a higher level, even though he had all the rust and never figuring it out. Like, you know, that was the MO for those days was, you know, we need certain players to be at a certain level at a certain time. And no matter what they do, we're not sending them down. And it did, you know, you know whether it's done to their development or whether they're never going to develop and the White Sox just uh, sped up the process of learning that they, there just wasn't anything there. It wasn't good. It wasn't watchable. It seemed uh, kind of pointless and, you know, maybe even like a little bit cruel. You know, just, you know, not like, you know, they, they weren't trying to send a message, I think, just more along the lines of just cruel with indifference in terms of just, you know, realizing that a, a Courtney Hawkins was never going to figure out Winston-Salem as a 19-year-old. Like that's, you know, watching that, I, I think that's always stuck with me in terms of rushing guys or like being appreciative of a White Sox team when they wait you know, the extra two weeks to see if a player comes down to earth before sending them up. Yeah. So having seen that, I don't complain too much, but I think as long as they, or I I should say, you know, with the number of bodies they have and the, the guys going in and off the roster on and off the developmental list, I think there's enough of a way to cushion expectations. Like I think if they sent DJ Gladney up there and said, okay, you're on the 28 man roster. Now you're going to be playing every day. You're going to strike out, you know, 55% of the time for three weeks and it's going to feel bad, but you know, this, we feel like you're going to build character this way. That might be a little bit of that, uh, I guess, buddy bell era mentality where I would think that there might be some kind of toll for ending a season on that kind of note and tanking numbers, uh, you know, and just ruining a guy's production, having them, uh, you know, leaving them nothing to feel good about entering the winter. But with so many people there and ways to, um, Spell a guy, you know, if he has a bad game, take him off the roster, replace him with somebody else. Uh, Tyler Osick plays first base instead of DJ Gladney. Like there are guys to swap in and out. Colson Montgomery, he's tired, but you know, Moises Castillo can take his place at shortstop if he has a bad game or, or looks ragged. Like, you know, there are ways to spell guys and to say like, I guess take enough of the mental load to where, you know, it's not sink or swim, uh, you know, There's a life preserver attached to them. They can grab it if they need to. And the numbers might be pretty gross at the end of this three weeks, and they might have a bad 60 plate appearances or what to judge them off of. But I'm guessing in this case, the expectations are managed carefully enough to where they realize, you know, it almost reminds me a little bit of 
like say Logan Glass going from you know Kannapolis to Charlotte to fill a short-term roster spot. And I think he had to fill it lo- longer than like most people do just because the shortage of outfielders they had. But, you know, there is a case where, you know, guys, because the White Sox are so condensed geographically that an A-ball player will have to go up three levels to fill a roster spot for a week. That week might look gross, but they know that they're not supposed to succeed. They might be trying to, but you know, ultimately they know that they're just trying to help the team out. And if they go 0 for 10 with seven strikeouts, that's not you know damning of their place in the organization at this point. It's just the way that uh, roster shook out at that given time. Like I, I think it's similar to that in that when the dust settles and they look at their numbers, they'll say, here's what I did at Kannapolis, which was age appropriate. Here's what I did at Winston-Salem, which was a test. And I did okay there. Birmingham, a lot to do but i think ultimately they'll look at it as oh that's what i need to work on or this is what uh the white Sox mean when they tell me that i need to be here with my barrel and this is the way for me to get my barrel there like that's what i'm thinking is more along the lines of what the white Sox are trying to do rather than say like we can get these guys good in a hurry or we can we feel like testing these guys will get them to the majors one year quicker i think it's coming from a better place than they were you know 10, 15 years ago when they were just flat rushing guys. Yeah, Jim, I agree. And I, you know, I, not that, you know, we have no idea whether it's going to work or not. And we can talk about like what, you know, what would make it successful, but that, that's another thing that we, we kind of talked about with Jack. I mean, the White Sox clearly don't care about winning minor league baseball games. Like they never have, even when, <laughs> even when like it was a highly ranked farm system, right. It was kind of like just not one of those raised things where like every team is winning every year. But what do you, what message do you think it sends a message to any of the other guys? Because like we clearly know now which guys the White Sox feel like are important. Like what you know whether these guys ultimately end up being good or not. Like you can take a look at this list and be like, these are the guys that the White Sox think are important because all of their their uh, their rovers and everything are in Birmingham. So what do you how do you think it makes the other guys feel? Like and you know like and some of them are just draft picks obviously but you know are you telling some of those other guys that they're not important and does that matter? I wondered about that just because when you see like you know Drew Dahlquist is probably the the best distillation of the player who was not having a good season was actually you know, not even like treading water, going backwards at Winston-Salem. And then he gets called up to Birmingham. He actually had a really nice start to end his year. So like, you know, credit to him to, uh, you know, survive at Birmingham and, and end on a really high note. But in terms of like, you know, a meritocracy having earned it, he really did not. Like he was, I, I would think, you know, probably he would even admit that, you know, his year was a real disappointment and and there was a real separation between him and and Matthew Thompson finally seeing the divide because they'd been basically joined the hip on prospect lists going up the ladder and they've had their flaws and their draft day strengths hadn't really materialized I think until until this year with with Thompson Dahlquist really hadn't shown uh what the White Sox and other you know draft experts thought he would show with his athleticism you know turning into you know pretty good control and and with with hopes for good command but he got the call you know and, and he got those reps at Birmingham and yeah, the thing is, it's such a big roster. Like, I thought it would have been weird if a guy like Dahlquist got a call, whereas Garrett Shanley did not. But Shanley's also there. And like, you know, Mayna, you know, Vera got the call, but Mayna also got the call. So I think there's, for every pitcher who might have been like a little bit premature or hadn't earned it, like there's another pitcher who had, you know, and, and you know, as as we get to the, the, the size of the rosters and just, you know, that there really is so much room at the end. Yeah, I, I think, you know, 
players who might be on the outside looking in and saying like, I deserve that. I, I think there is an argument to where like you wouldn't have been able to get playing time, like playing in Winston-Salem, kind of grinding out the rest of the season there is probably better than being like fourth string on the Barons. It, it kind of reminds me of like the, the, the big high school football programs when they have like 80 guys on the sidelines and there's like a, a six string center who uh, doesn't do anything, but he's wearing a, uni- a uniform. You know, he gets to wear the uh, jersey on Fridays uh, in, in the hallways. That's kind of what it reminds me of. Like, if you go any bigger with this Barons roster. So I don't think it should be too stinging of a blow for anybody's on the outside looking in. I would think if there is, they'd use his motivation versus looking for a way out because, you know, Winston-Salem was so barren at the end of the year and not, not the Birmingham kind, just so the, the cupboard was empty. So when playing time gets redistributed in a more normal way next year, everybody who might have been lacking that look uh, with the Barons and, and didn't get that shot, they will have the opportunity next year to make good and 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 prove themselves as worthy of a look, kind of like the Danny Mendick role. Like you know, Danny Mendick for so many years went uh, overlooked, uh, you know, as a third day draft pick, twenty second round, and he produced every year going up the ladder: Kannapolis, Winston Salem, Birmingham, and he just you know made himself a presence at every roster. I think Zach Remillard is probably that guy now. Just uh, produces everywhere you want him to produce, plays everywhere you want him to play. He doesn't complain uh, you know, about having to pick up a glove for a position that he's not used to, and he produces. And I, I think there are enough of those lessons there where like, even if you are a little bit stung uh, by not getting the invite, there will be opportunities. There will be plate appearances, bats, injuries to – Get that call. And so, yeah, I, I think I, I wouldn't expect there to be like a major you know, ramifications for anybody who, who had their feelings hurt. Like, I think, you know, the White Sox probably took a bigger risk with requiring all their players to be vaccinated uh, yeah, on short notice in terms of like, you know, alienating players and and wanting you know, having them wanting to lead the organization, not being invested in the organization for one reason or another. And they survived that just fine. So that seemed to me like to be a bigger boat rocking move rather than this one. I think it's another significant point that you bring up is the size of the roster, and you've been mentioning it throughout our conversation. And just to focus in on that point, you know, it doesn't put the stress on individual players, on one player to play all the time every day at this level. There's a rotation to it. There are guys spelling one another opportunities for pitchers to not have to throw as many innings maybe than in the past in this particular instance. And it's just, again, an opportunity for the White Sox to evaluate those who they believe are the top talent in their system against a level of competition that many have never seen before. So Jim, with that being said, what do you think the end goal is for the White Sox? What do you think that they want to see from their players? What do they want to get out of this project ultimately? Well, yeah, I, I guess uh, discarding the obvious points, which is like improvement for everybody. I think, well, here, here's one, uh, I guess, thing we haven't brought up yet. And one thing that's kind of been rolling around the back of my mind is I wonder if this is a way to, and I don't think it's going to be like they're going to pull an end around around the other 29 teams, but it is a way to maybe try to goose trade value a little bit and saying like, you know, for a Dahlquist type or a Kelly type, who's maybe like behind the curve developmentally, like say, Hey, we really believe in this guy. We call him up to Birmingham. So, uh, you know, where he's not just gonna be a toss in a trade. Uh, we're gonna, you know, need a little bit more. I'm not certain that's the case or like, you know, that, that goes into it, but that just something crossed my mind for trying to signal the value of signaling why you believe somebody is important, uh, to your organization, even if, uh, their numbers and, and, 
radar gun readings, exit velocity, strikeout rates, etc., cetera, uh, suggest that they're not really keeping up with where the White Sox thought they would be. But ultimately, I don't know if we're going to be able to test it. Like, you know, if DJ Gladney went from Kannapolis to Winston-Salem without a stop in Birmingham, would his numbers look drastically different from going from uh, Kannapolis to Birmingham to Winston-Salem? Th- that's something I'm going to be wondering about. Like, I think if he strikes out, say, 35% of the time in, in Winston-Salem and has some occasional power outbursts, but ultimately looks like that K rate is what we're going to be looking at for whether he turns into a guy or not. I think, you know, that's a case where you can basically make of Project Birmingham what you will. You can say like, well, if he didn't go to Birmingham, then he would have been striking out 40% of the time. Or you can wait for that improvement around the corner because he knows what it takes to get to double A. And so even if he's struggling for the first month or so, you can kind of hold on to that and say, he knows what you know, it takes. He's been exposed to it. So he's working on those improvements to get there. Um, that's why it's hard for me to treat this, I guess, as a way to say, like, this is going to change things. To me, like having seen the the AFL roster come out and seeing who they're sending there, it just, to me, makes me think like, this is a way to get started in their fall programs. This is a way to just have their instructors implementing what they want to show and controlling just how much failure they experience at a higher level versus throwing them to the A ball rosters and having them uh, be at the mercy of somebody else's playing time distributions, which, you know, I think is uh, worthy enough in its own right. Like it's uh, if they sent like say a Brian Ramos uh, to the Arizona fall league, any, you know, posts a 600 OPS and strikes out like 30% of the time, like you'd say, Oh, that's instructive. Like, it's good that he went there. Good that he got the reps. Like we're not counting on success from him at this time. So fine. You know, the numbers are what they are. Let's see what he does next year. And to me, this serves that same purpose, fills that same role, except they can do it for more guys than the seven guys they send. And the, you know, two guys who can play every day versus the one guy can only play twice a week. That that's what this strikes me as. And we see with the Arizona fall league, like that doesn't, you know, really, foreshadow excellent results the next time around. So I would treat it the same way as you would treat like an uneven Arizona Fall League experience to where like, it's it's probably good that he got those reps. It's probably not going to change my prospect rankings either, no matter what they do over these three weeks. Yeah, that's interesting. And I was thinking about that too, just in regards to like how, like how much are they going to take into account this for next year? And like where you place guys next year, right? Because if Colson Montgomery kept doing what he was doing at Winston-Salem and, you know, kind of died out down the stretch. But I think we all would have written that off as just he's never played this much baseball before, right? Like he would have probably started in Birmingham next year. And like, I don't think any of us would have batted an eye. Does this change any of that? Like how much are they going to, you know, like some guys are just going to go back down to Winston and it's fine because you should have never been in Birmingham to begin with. I guess I'm just curious about that. And then, you know, the alt site setting that they had in 2020, I don't think 2020 was ideal for anyone, obviously. And we hear Mm -hmm. all these White Sox quotes because we cover the White Sox, right? But I think a lot of people and a lot of members of that org, like they kind of look back at the alternate site stuff like glowingly and thought that it helped. And guys like Jake Berger and Andrew Vaughn, I mean, look, they might have been they might have broke out like in the minors anyway. You know, Garrett Crochet got a chance to be there. And I think Sebi Zavala said that it helped him. So, you know, yeah, I think I think that's what they were trying to recreate. I'll be curious to see, I guess, over the next 18 months or so, 
like what some of these top guys say, like whether or not like going to Birmingham for six weeks helped them or not. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, the idea of the alt site, because I think, you know, probably the alt site caught the White Sox at the wrong time, just with having so many high school players needing reps and needing reps against players their own level. And instead you have like Jared Kelly and Matthew Thompson facing Nikki Delmonico and Delmonico has nothing to gain from facing a Jared Kelly or a, a Drew Dahlquist. And he's just, you know, kind of toying with them. And, you know, Kelly and Dahlquist don't have much to gain from facing Delmonico because he's just better than them. Like, even though Delmonico is not great, he just, he's seen it all before. He's had, you know, spent a long time in the minors. It's been a long climb for him. So the the experience, the, the, the talent gap was too wide. And the guys you mentioned, like Zavala, Berger, Vaughn, like they had that in them. Uh, they had the... Uh, you burger had some of the, you know, the a ball reps already and, and fared decently there. And he played spring training with the major league camp. So he'd uh, faced upper level pitching before in some regards and, you know, should have been a quick riser anyway, based on his draft day report card. So that's a case where, yeah, it's for the players on the cusp of high a, uh, it might've been a great launching pad for them. So I can see it that, that, uh, that similarity between the two. Uh, the question I think is, you know, did the, I guess I'd be curious whether like the, the pitch lab infrastructure was there and, and, you know, the same kind of attention to detail and, and the ability to focus on one or two things at a time without, you know, caring about numbers because numbers weren't being recorded and the games were barely, you know, resembling actual games because they were limited in, in the kind of competition they could play and the number of bodies at the alternate site at any given time. So this is a little bit more structured and the consequences of uh, their failures are a little bit more real because everything's recorded. But yeah, if they're able to disperse the playing time enough to where uh players don't feel too saddled with disappointing performances, then yeah, it could fit that same or it could be a way for them to take another run at that alternate training site type environment while having guys who are in a better position to take advantage of that, uh, which the White Sox were not really in a position to do based on just how many guys needed actual games against other 19 and 20 year olds. We're talking to Jim Margulis. He manages Sox machine and future Sox. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more individual performances from Project Birmingham, as well as a look ahead to 2023 and what that means for some of these White Sox prospects. Don't go anywhere. You got the Future Sox podcast. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Jim, I want to bring you back to some of the players that you were 
watching at Project Birmingham, specifically this one. Colson Montgomery, you saw him turn around a fastball and it went pretty far. What did you get out of watching Colson Montgomery move around on the field and some of the at-bats that you saw uh, could you just give me your evaluation of the top prospect for the White Sox? Well, actually, he turned around an off-speed pitch in the Grand Slam. He did turn around a fastball for his his homer a, a couple days later. But watching Montgomery and you know his first two at bats, he hit a fly out or like a lazy pop fly to the left field, and then lined out to left field. But it looked like you know just and I'm not sure if this is my knowledge of what he was doing at the level before I showed up, but just seeing the, the, the balls in air going the left side for a left-handed hitter and saying like, Oh, his, his bat's a little slow. He's a little tired. Uh, the barrel is dragging a little bit. He's just trying to get by. And then, you know, sure enough, hits a grand slam on, on a, you know, I think it was an O2 count. He was behind a count was ready for it. Uh, he awaited back on a curveball that hung. I, I think it was a curveball and, and Send out to right field, no doubt shot. Like that was cool to see. And then he turned around a, a, a fastball later, and that was good. So I think the at bats are inconsistent, but the talent is still flashing to where, like, I think depending on what Jose Rodriguez's status is and how they feel like he's coming back from his uh, Hammett injury, to where, like, I could see Montgomery returning to Winston Salem for a bit just to allow Rodriguez to return to Birmingham for a bit to allow Lenin Sosa to start in Charlotte for a bit just to maintain that order of shortstops. And then, like, maybe after three weeks, they call it Montgomery. But I think if he were. Uh, starting in Birmingham next season, it'd be fine because like the play discipline looks more or less there. Like I didn't see him chasing too many bad pitches, you know, not uh, didn't look in over his head, like the way like DJ Gladney is swinging and missing a lot. Even like Wes Kath is swinging and missing more. Like he looks under control. It's just more of a matter. I think of summoning that impact energy and, and, and that hundred percent shape or even like the 95% shape that Montgomery had played with for most of the season. Jim, one of the guys that was there prior to everybody else arriving is Oscar Colas. I think, you know, I think we get more questions about Oscar Colas than anybody else, you know, for the podcast and just on Twitter and social media. You know, it's funny, like something that you mentioned earlier, talking about Jared Mitchell and Courtney Hawkins and those dark days and even like Gordon Beckham, like they promoted him, you know, like all the way through and all of a sudden he's in the majors. So, you know, like I think a lot of people would have liked to see Oscar Colas this year. If the White Sox did it, I would have been, okay, fine. Like, let's see what Oscar Colas looks like as a newly turned 24-year-old. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing that we haven't seen Oscar Colas in the majors this year? I think it's both. I think it's probably a good thing for him just because, like, yeah, I think the hesitation I had in calling for Colas is that, like, Calling him up in the middle of a pennant race, not just a pennant race, the pennant race where the White Sox are trailing and need like all the contributions they can get. Like if Colas came up and felt like he needed to be the hero and he went like two for 25 with 13 strikeouts, like that would have been just like, oh, great, here's another bust. Like, you know, it wouldn't have done him any favors to fail in that way. Like the, I think the uh, resonance of any kind of face plant out of the gate would have, um, been enhanced just by the uh 
pressures the rest of the team is under that are completely uh, not the fault of Cola. So that's the reason why I didn't want to see him called up. Why I would want to see him called up is just because it would have been an acknowledgement that one, the White Sox, you know, need outfield help. And also like Luis Robert playing with one hand, like for three weeks when the White Sox need every bit of production they can get. That's why I would have liked to see Colossus as an acknowledgement that the status quo at the major league level is unacceptable. And like the way they called up Lenin Sosa just to see if he could make that jump, realizing he couldn't, then sending him back down to Charlotte where he's been okay. Like that kind of handling of Colas would have been, you know, I, I guess responsible. On the other hand, like having seen Lenin Sosa get added to the 40 man roster and have an option uh, used up, uh, you know, for an experiment that did not work. I didn't want to see Colas have the same thing to where like they have to burn an option a year earlier than they wanted to. Like if they called up Colas, I would have rather seen him get called up in September. And if it doesn't work out, he just hangs out in one of the two extra roster spots and he can worry about Charlotte next year. Uh, but ultimately with Mark Payton playing so well at Charlotte, I think he would have been the guy I would have rather seen called up to Chicago just to see if any of that production translated because between like Robert struggling and with his injury and with Adam Engel looking like he might be a non-tender candidate at the end of the year, like I think Peyton would have been my argument for somebody else. And, and Colas would have been like, okay, Peyton's up in Chicago, call up Colas to Charlotte, see what he does there, get him a head start and, and figure out if he can be in the plans for uh, 2023. And if so, like how early he can be in the plans. But I think ultimately, I think it's responsible on the White Sox part to just not saddle Colas with the expectations that he can save the season because that would have been too much for him, I think. Yeah, I agree. And look, I, like I've been writing about this guy for so long. The one thing I didn't expect was like, it seems like he's going to be a fine defender. And, you know, they played him in center and he was OK and he's not going to play center, but he can probably play right. So, and even if it's, you know, he turns into more of a righty masher or whatever, you know, like that's, you know, that's pretty good for what they paid for him. I just, he was very, like, I, I just didn't know what to expect. Like the body looked better. The power started to come. So I think he's, you know, I, th I think he's an option for next year's big league team for sure. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad that he did not have to come up and play a savior role. Yeah, I think the thing that I'm impressed about Colas I didn't expect is that he really stays on left-handed pitching well. Uh, like, there isn't any give uh, in his approach. Like, with, like, Luis Mieses, like, he's got that big left-handed uppercut swing, same thing along the lines of, like, Gavin Sheets, to where, like, you understand, like, why he would have trouble covering breaking stuff away. And, and Colas is different in that he really stays on it and really uh, can can drive the ball the other way, can even pull uh, left-hand pitching. So I think that's what makes him special. So when he gets called up, I would like to see it like be an earnest call up. And, you know, the, the, the two arguments I can see both sides of is that, you know, with him being 24, 25, you know, not, not being like a prospect age, think like, well, you're not going to wreck his confidence. He's already conquered one professional ladder by uh, working his way from the J Japanese minor leagues to the NPB. So like he's done that before. So you can't like ruin him uh, by overwhelming him with another such climb from minors to majors because he should be better equipped to uh, handle it due to his age and experience, but also like with a three-year layoff, I don't know what kind of fatigue things he's going through to where, uh, you know, having him try to catch up to the extra ticks of average velocity of major league pitching just might be too much. So 
ultimately I'm fine. I guess I would have rather seen him. And I guess maybe we could see him uh, finish the season in Charlotte, just see what he looks like there. A pitcher that's getting some attention across the minor league circles and those who evaluate the White Sox system is Cole Seamus. He's an undrafted free agent in 2021 and earned a spot on our top 30 list at futuresox.com. And you got a chance to see him, Jim. What were some of the impressions that you got watching Seamus pitch? Well, he's been one of those guys, I think, who um, has been uneven, you know, at at Birmingham, and one of those where I guess maybe the the hitting equivalent of a Gladney Cath type to where like might be too much for him now, but if he can get some moments, um, you know, get some uh, pitches executed against Double A pitching, it shows like oh that fastball got that guy out at Canapolis, but does not get that guy out here, like that might be instructive. But saw him pitch one inning. Uh, Handled it well enough. Walked a guy. A trainer came out. Yeah, you know, and I thought like, well, that's that's not good. You know, but he seemed to be, you know, you know, reading the body language. The you know, trying to lip. I'm not a great lip reader. I'm more like reading facial expressions. Like reading his facial expressions, kind of. Yeah, you know, it, it led me to think like he's a little bit confused why the trainer's out, or at least like he's trying to. Um, you know, plead that he can stay in the game. He didn't even throw like a warm up toss afterwards, so he didn't have anything to prove. So ultimately, I think he's fine. I asked the uh, the, the track man uh, guy afterwards, like whether there was any kind of velocity loss or anything that you know, was really awkward about the couple of pitches he let go. And he said, nope, he was throwing like you know low nineties or you know ninety three and you know, ninety two, ninety three. So like everything was there. So to me, he strikes me as somebody who. Curious to see what he looks like at Winston-Salem next year because the stuff doesn't seem overwhelming, uh, but people seem to like the pitchability in the arsenal. And as we've seen you know, over the years, uh, there are a lot of guys who have that pitchability until all of a sudden they really need that 95-96 and 93 doesn't do. But yeah, the fact that he got that call up despite the, the crowded roster, I, I think is a nice... I guess counterpoint to say like the the Dahlquist types or the Vera types where they've they're, they're there just because they've invested a lot in those guys and not because their performance is dictating that they be in Birmingham at this given time. So Jim, you know, one of the guys that I kind of had expectations that would help this 2022 White Sox team was Romy Gonzalez. You know, he didn't make the club out of spring training. They had Larry Garcia and Josh Harrison, and then Romy went down and basically was hurt all year and had multiple different things. And I think he, I don't know that he fell off the radar, but he's like, you know, he's an older guy that really took off last year. Then all of a sudden, like he's back and he's helping the big league team. Just like, what have your overall impressions been of seeing him like have this much success? And even the fact that they've let him play as often as they've let him play. It's, it's weird in a, in a good way or like, yeah, I didn't expect it, especially like, you know, corresponding with Jeff Cohen, uh, who, who covers the Knights and, and covers the Knights really well and, and talks to guys. And even before uh, Gonzalez, uh, you know, went on the injured list for, you know, a month plus, like he'd been, you know, he told me that uh, he'd been dealing with like a tonsil issue and, and thought like he'd got to have his tonsils removed after a season. But he's not only playing through leg injuries, but he also has illness that's really uh, holding him back. And yeah, you know, sure enough, he gets the tonsils removed. He uh, gets a time off to address both uh, illness and injury, and all of a sudden he's back to where he was. And that's it's a relief, just because you know 
I think for somebody like Gonzalez, who already has the chip stacked against him as an 18th round pick, like he's not going to get that many breaks. And, and that's why I feel bad for Danny Mendick too. Although at least I think Mendick has played enough at the major league level and well enough to where even if he runs out of time with the White Sox, he'll get looks elsewhere because he can handle a lot of different positions. But when it comes to these, these third day draft picks who you had to seize a certain opportunity to get the look in the first place. Like I, I, was, I was worried that like he would have his best chance ruined by circumstances beyond his control. So to see him dust himself off and to get the time he needed and also to get the crisis at the major league level to where like all of a sudden they could use whoever is the most promising. And, you know, I wrote about it on in Sunday's minor keys that I thought Yolbert Sanchez would be that guy who would be called up at the, uh, in order to fulfill that need at the major league level, because he can hit 280 and he can play good defense and anything else he, he adds is gravy. Uh, but you know, with Sanchez only hitting 280 at Charlotte and like not drawing walks, not stealing bases, not hitting for power, like 280 is all he has. And Gonzalez is playing better both in the AZL during his rehab stint and also at Charlotte. Like they went for impact, just like they went for impact when they called up Sosa at double A uh, and gave him that opportunity. Like they're looking for impact here, which I think is ultimately a good thing. And it's, I think, rewarding for everybody, especially Gonzalez, but you know, people who backed him in the minor leagues, uh, the, the transformation he went year over year after not being invited to the alternate training site in 2020, having the breakout season he had last year. Like it's cool to see that he was able to salvage his season, not a lost year. And even if like, you know, he tails off the end of the year and is in the same place he was, the same place he was is better than what could have been, which is like being an afterthought because now he's buried behind five other middle infielders. Jimmy, you've been so kind with your time. This has been so insightful, and we really appreciate everything that you do at Sox Machine and for us at Future Sox as well. This is the last thing that I have for you, and I'm looking at the big league roster, at least trying to anticipate what the offseason is going to look like. And it seems to me that the White Sox over the last at least two years have believed that their minor league depth can ultimately help them at the big league level. And they're not necessarily as aggressive in free agency. And maybe that's correlated, but I'm just trying to think like the organization at this point. Do you believe that they have the future second baseman of the White Sox in the minors within their organization already? And who are some of the players that you kind of foresee playing an impact on the infield? Because there's a lot of you know quality infielders now, especially at second base that may have an impact next year on the White Sox. This is where it's tough because, you know, between second base and right field, we've been talking about the same positions for a few years now. And we want to see the White Sox do more to address those positions. And they don't, they, you know, they, they rely on the depth or they rely on like, say a cheap signing to hold over. And then one of those depth guys coming through, winning the job and solidifying the position for years to come and hasn't happened yet. And given uh, the failures up top this year, I really don't want to see them do it again, which is unfortunate because like, this is probably the year where they're closest to having that reality, whether it's Gonzalez being like an opening day, second baseman with Sosa and Rodriguez and, you know, maybe even Colson Montgomery, uh, you know, backing him up at second base Sanchez as well. Like having a number of decent plan B's through D to get them by like that would be feasible. Same thing with like right field. If they felt like Colas was going to be a guy who deserved playing time from like late May on, 
Uh, and they just wanted somebody to bridge that gap uh, for the first couple months and then like, you know, force Colas to make good and, and, and knock down the door versus just, you know, having like an, a placeholder. I could see that. The problem is like, we've seen them try that before. Like you know, the, the, the right fielders they've swung and missed on just, it doesn't work. So I don't want to see them. I don't want to encourage them and say like, this is the year to go cheap on right field because it never seems to work out. Uh, so I'm with the mindset, like you watch the Dodgers and you watch the way they block prospects thoroughly until like, you know, Gavin Lux has to make it happen. Uh, whether it's because of injuries or because he's just too good. Like he makes it happen and they don't wait for Gavin Lux to, uh, to, to work his way into game shape at the major league level and be that guy. Like they just keep waiting, you know, I guess making Lux wait and force the issue and like tough for him. That's just life being in the Dodgers. Like I would like to see the White Sox have that kind of approach or like the, uh, treats their, their 26 man roster as like that hollowed of ground, uh, to where like, Oh, you, Nice season you're having at Birmingham, Oscar Colas. I know we gave you the uh, you know the 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 bonus and such, and that you are the heir apparent for a right field job. But no, we're gonna you know just make you earn it this year. We're gonna have yeah. You know, I haven't looked at the the twenty or I guess the the free agent uh, possibilities for right field for the twenty six man roster. But let's just use Michael Conforto's name as a placeholder for that type type of player who like. Uh, would have been in that same situation last year, blocking like maybe an Andrew Vaughn from playing a corner outfield spot. Like here's Michael Conforto. Now they're going to make you earn it. Now we're going to make you like post great numbers at Charlotte's and you're going to have to wait for that, you know, crack in the roster to get that spot. And then when you get that crack, you're going to have to play well. Like I would like to see the White Sox treat their 26 man roster as the same way as like a place where uh, that can't be taken for granted that you can't use as the, final spot for your development or as we've seen this year with Grandel and Mankata, like a place to take a rehab stint for two months uh that's i think what's really been i think the most annoying to me watching this white Sox team is just how many guys were allowed to not look like themselves for weeks and if they're looking to get better next year they really can't have that same situation where somebody struggles for eight to 12 weeks and they think they're going to get better, but maybe they don't. And that's really unfortunate for uh, somebody like Colas who might not get the opportunity that a, a guy like Gavin Sheets got to try and fail and go down briefly uh, to the Myers, but come back and try and fail and, and succeed. Like you have the uneven year, but if the White Sox want to get serious about being better than the guardians in the twins and not just, you know, coasting on the weakness of the division because as we're seeing this year, like they're not talented enough, they're not sure enough in terms of like you know, how well they play and how well well they're managed to coast. Like they can't do that anymore. So I wonder if you're going to see like any kind of ramifications for positions that have been of need, but they've allowed to you know more or less try to let their minor league depth win. Um, it, it's a case where like, yeah, I get it, but they made the same mistake for you know, three, four years now, especially with the right field to where like, I don't want to see them make that make mistake again. Even if it looks like they're blocking Colossus and I want to see Colossus, like 
the stakes are too high. And I think if they fail again, like there'll be plenty of time for Coloss because they're going to be uh, maybe not a, a complete teardown, but they're going to be like at least, very least retooling, uh, shedding some salary, reorganizing, trying to line up another wave of talent. And there'll be plenty of playing time uh, from 2024 on. But for 2023, I think they have to take it really seriously. And any jobs at the minor league level will have to be earned. Yeah, so like going off of that point, and this is the last thing I have for you. Thanks so much for joining us today. You know, you and Josh doing the Sox Machine podcast have rightfully talked a lot about Tony Larusa this year. I think it's it's inevitable when you're talking about the big league team. Um, but you know, I think that situation we're just going to find out so much over the next six to eight weeks. Do you? What do you think? I guess we do. We see like a manager search here potentially, and if so. Does 32-year-old Justin Gershley factor in at all? He's, you know, I saw like I was writing the AFL preview. He's managing the Glendale Desert Dogs. He's in Birmingham. You know, I think the next logical step is probably Charlotte, but who knows? He's kind of a kind of a rising star in the industry for as young as he is. I don't think so, just because it reminds me, uh, and there are a lot of you know parallels between the White Sox and the Padres, but it reminds me a little bit of the Padres with Jace Tingler and everything that came out after Tingler was fired and that just didn't have the, whether it's the gravitas, the experience, whether they thought he was too close to AJ Preller to have any autonomy, but he'd never played in the majors before. He was somebody who was seen as a rising star from the front office. But when it came to managing Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis and Eric Hosmer and all the frustrations they had and the injuries at the major league level, like Tingler was in over his head. And I think like same thing for Jershley, like, it's interesting what they've done for him, you know, and in terms of like, you know, paving a way for him to get developmental reps as a manager at the major league level and allowing him to matriculate up the ladder like any other prospect would. But at this stage where the White Sox are like needing to win, I think going from Larusa, who had really no connection to the front office and then and like Rick Hahn had no say over him, you know, if you look at you know, if you treat managers as um, the exact opposite of the guy who preceded him. Like in this case, like if they went from Tony Larusa to Justin Jershley, I think that could be seen as going from a guy who the front office had no control over to a front office puppet. Like I think that could be interpreted that way. Not that you know that that's no smear on Jershley, just more along lines of just looking at the stakes of the season. And if the, if Jershley gets settled with a a roster that is flawed and is exploited by the Guardians and the Twins, just their weaknesses of being too right-handed and uh, and too uh, unsound defensively and not having enough speed and athleticism in the field. Like, Churchley is not going to solve that. And then if he doesn't, yeah, if he's never been there before, if he's never played in the majors, like if you have some guys turn on him, like we saw Robin Ventura not be able to handle that kind of strain. And Ventura is a near Hall of Fame player. Uh, if you saddle a guy who just you know did not have the major league experience, and while he has experience managing in the Myers the way Ventura did not, like I don't think it's going to be enough to offset like just the lack of credentials if things go really wrong. Like I think Jace Tingler is the guy I look at. Like I think if it were a rebuilding situation. And they're looking for somebody who could handle like a bunch of prospects and, and weather uncertainty of production. Like, sure, call up Jerishley and see like he can be their guy and, and, and they can grow together. And uh, when the White Sox are on the cusp of, you know, making the postseason, like 
Jerusalem will not have the baggage of losing the way like Rick Renteria had because he's been their guy all along. But I think for a team that needs to win, has a whole bunch of veterans um, and has never managed a major league clubhouse, never been in a major league clubhouse and even a coaching role. I think that's way too much to ask for him. And I would hope that the White Sox would just, you know, commence their commence the coaching search, the managerial search they thought they were going to have before LaRusso was thrust upon them. And that's why I think like Rick Hahn is not saying anything this year because he saw how he got railroaded uh, by the uh, ownership suite uh, when it came to trying to find the manager he wanted. So I think he's being very careful to not say anything about the managerial situation because like he doesn't know who's going to be the manager. So I think he's just saying nothing this year rather than promising a robust search that will lead to external candidates because they've been too insular and uh, because he saw how that blew up in his face before. That's Jim Margulis, the head of Sox Machine and Future Sox. He is also on the Sox Machine podcast with Josh Nelson. Be sure to subscribe as well as subscribe to this podcast right here, Future Sox and FutureSox.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Future Sox. Jim runs the account at Sox Machine. That's where you can get all the information. We cover the White Sox 365 days a year. Jim, the season is <laughs> almost over. We really appreciate all the hard work, and thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, likewise. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing all the recaps, all the lists, all the you know the evaluations of depth, all the AFL reviews. Like, you have your plate uh, full as well. I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with it. We're heading into the offseason, and continuing White Sox coverage for you, whether they make the playoffs or not. I can't believe I mentioned that on the podcast. I mean, come on. All right, we're, we're going to move on from that. That's Jim Margulis of Sox Machine, James Fox, the co-host of this podcast, also the senior editor of FutureSox.com. My name is Mike Rankin. This has been a product of the Blue Wire Network. Thanks so much for supporting us on Patreon. Go to SoxMachine.com to sign up if you want to become part of our community. You can also engage in forums and get this podcast specifically ad-free if you are a patron. So we really do appreciate everything that you do for us, the listener and reader. Again, one more time for Jim Margulis, James Fox. My name's Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. We'll talk to you all next time.